Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 7 this morning. Mark chapter 7. Last week you heard Jesus say, it's not what's on the outside of you that defiles you, it's what is on the inside and the overflow of the heart. And so we learned really that God isn't looking for traditions, He's not looking for outward expressions of religions, He's really looking for a heart which is humble and ready to receive the grace that He offers through Jesus. And that's really what connects last week's text with the text that we're going to study this week. And as we approach it, I want you to notice that Jesus now leaves the borders of Israel. Uh, having left a place that supposedly is clean, he goes to a place that is supposedly defiled, and there he meets a, a Gentile woman. And unlike the Pharisees, really unlike the disciples at this moment, here's a woman who's got a humble heart. Here's a woman who's actually desperate for the message of salvation that Christ offers. So look at chapter 7. We're going to read verses 24 through the end of the chapter. As you read God's Word with me, I'll remind you that it's His Word. It actually is His infallible rule of faith and practice. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and He entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet He could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of Him and came and fell down at His feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. Let's pray for the help of his spirit. Almighty God, as we come to your word, we ask for your help. Father, we pray that you would give us understanding and clarity through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And I pray once again, Lord, you know the wickedness of my own heart. Would you be willing simply to use me as a mouthpiece, a herald of your word? Uh, be glorified, we pray to use a sinful, crooked stick. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Susan and I went to see the play To Kill a Mockingbird at the Gouge Center last week. And if you remember the book by Harper Lee, it's been adapted to a play for the modern audience. 
And I think if you've ever read the book, you would notice that the characters in the play have actually been reworked a little bit for the sake of the, of the stage. Atticus Finch, the main, well, the character who is the father of the, the lead character, it, it, it takes in the book an entire story to explain who he is, the depth of his character. And I think when you see this on the stage, he loses some of his complexity in my humble opinion. He's different. He is still principled, but in some ways he is is slight condescending even to the people around him. Now, I haven't read the book since seventh grade, but I suspect that those who know the book really well would notice the differences. And the fact is, the further you get from the book, the more comfortable you are with reshaped characters. But if you knew the original, then you are completely uncomfortable. Well, I say that because the exact same thing can happen in your understanding of the character of Jesus. The further you get from the book, the Bible itself, the more comfortable you are with a Jesus who has been slightly reshaped to fit a modern audience. And so we come to the Gospel of Mark And we don't find the meek and mild, wise teacher of truth who is somewhat strange but never strong. We find a Jesus that's very complex. A Jesus who on one hand can speak with such directness that you go, "Mm, did he really mean that? And then on another hand can be so tender that you go, wow, this is remarkable. It's the whole reason we walk through the Bible come to the gospel of Mark and you meet an actual, true, real Jesus, not a reshaped version of your own imagination. And here's why you need that. Because if you reshape Jesus into an image in your head, not only will he always be less challenging to your particular sin patterns, he will not be nearly as comforting to your particular spiritual needs. We aren't trying in a sense, to to look at Jesus from a distance. We're trying to learn about the God who says, I want a relationship with my people. So that you and I, even in interaction with the almighty God of heaven, would know him revealed through Christ. Here's what you find in our passage. Jesus consistently cleanses you according to your need. Now, the cleansing I'm going to talk about today is not a one-time, once-only cleansing from sin. I'm talking about a lifelong shaping that takes place. And as we walk through the text, I'm simply going to show you a, a morsel of mercy, a sigh of the Savior, and then thirdly, disobedience and doxology. We start with a morsel of mercy. It's on the heels of that question about spiritual defilement that Jesus had with the debate with the Pharisees things clean and things unclean. And so then Jesus goes directly out to the unclean and he leaves the borders of Israel. This is the one time that we know of in the scriptures where he heads outside the borders of Israel and he enters a house, verse 24. And he doesn't want people to know that he's there. I think he's still seeking the rest for his disciples back that he was looking for back in chapter six. But notice verse 25 is Mark's favorite word immediately. A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a a Gentile 
a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, there's hints in the text that I think explain the scene. Number one, she's a a woman, which to a Jewish man means that she's really insignificant. Number two, she is a Gentile, which to a Jewish man means unclean. And she seeks help, thirdly, not for a son, but for a daughter. All of that would combine to say everything that she's about to ask would be thought of as beneath the dignity of any true rabbi. And yet what you find here is this combination of desperation and hope that reveals her deep-seated faith. So it's a heart filled with respect. It's also a heart filled with grief that causes her to fall at his feet. I think any parent can completely understand this. You see your child hurting, and you are incapable of doing anything to help. You really do become desperate, and you really do genuinely grieve. Mark's explanation actually adds to the anguish. The possessed little girl is described as as a little daughter. And in a context like this, it doesn't actually mean that she's small or that she's young. Mark's trying to say she is precious to her mother. And if Mark's later explanation of demon possession in chapter 9 is any indication, this precious little girl is afflicted with convulsions, foaming at the mouth, self-injury of all kinds. And so the images for this mom are heart-wrenching, which is why she's begging. And Mark says she actually won't stop begging for him to cast out the demon from her daughter. So what does Jesus say? Verse 27, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the the, the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, that's tender. Are you surprised? What is Jesus saying? Well, scholars recognize at least two possibilities of what he means. Number one, Jesus is saying, well, I came, of course, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. In fact, there's lots of Old Testament images that speak of, of the nation of Israel as God's children. So Jesus could be saying, well, I'm going to feed God's children first. It wouldn't be right to give God's children's food to a household dog. Second possible option, that Jesus has gone into this region to give his disciples rest from those crowds who think that he's nothing but a miracle worker. And so the disciples are gathered in a sense to join to enjoy the fellowship of a family meal And as head of the family, Jesus could be saying, should I interrupt the family meal in order to feed the household pets? Well, it's slightly softer than the thought that this is one of those yard dogs or a scavenger out in the street. He really is talking about household family pets that at some level are loved. But he's still calling her a dog. And I think she picks up on the illustration She picks up on it and moves ahead. Jesus is actually painting a picture of a a common Greco-Roman household. And this is what the culture would look like. The father brings his food to his table and he divides up the portions for his children. 
And yes, there are household dogs. But it would be unthinkable for the father to to break off a portion of food which was meant for a child and give it under the table to one of the dogs. Let's be really clear. The statement is offensive, no matter how you slice it. Jesus says, you don't deserve a seat at the table of the Lord. But let's be really clear. If you are more offended than perplexed, you'll miss the whole point. Because everything about the rest of the passage tells us that Jesus doesn't think of her as defiled, the way the Jews might have thought of a Gentile woman. Let's be clear, he's not making a racist statement, you're a Gentile, I'm a Jew. He's not making a chauvinistic comment, you're a woman, I'm a man. He's making a spiritual comment, a heart-level comment, and he uses it to test her faith. And so as she lays at his feet in desperation, you notice, don't you, that her faith actually perseveres, and this is beautiful, verse 28. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. In Galilee and all around the nation of Israel, Jesus is being misunderstood consistently as nothing but a a miracle worker. And now he comes to to the land of the Gentiles and he finds desperate hope which inspires faith. So Jesus pushes against her request in order to test and and prove her heart. And what does she say? She says perhaps the most humble, self-aware, spiritually-minded comment that anyone has said to Jesus up to this point. In fact, behind her simple comment is this. I do not deserve anything that you might give to me. That is utter humility. But it's not humility by itself. It's also hope. Jesus, there's so much mercy falling from your hands that if I was to to get a crumb, if I was just to get a morsel of mercy, it would be enough. Which is actually a perfect picture of what it takes for anybody to receive the grace and help of Christ. If you want to understand the complexity of the gospel, This is it. On one hand, I have nothing that should invite me or welcome me to have a seat at your table. All of my actions of sin and guilt means that spiritually, I really am a dog under the table of of the Father. And friends, if that offends you, you will miss the hope. But if you press into the offense the way that she does and you believe it, then you'll find the hope that she knows to be true. That there is so much mercy on the table of King Jesus that even the scraps that fall from his table to the floor, even those little morsels of mercy would be more than enough to satisfy the depth of your soul, more so than any other feast that the world might serve. This is equally relevant, I think, to brand new Christians and Christians who have been walking with the Lord for a long time. Because yes, genuine repentance is always based on on true, real humility. I am an unworthy dog in a sense, but it also hinges on a confident joy in the loving kindness of Jesus to receive dogs. 
sinners who do not deserve a seat at the table. It's actually only when you find both that you, that you learn what Jesus means about the joy which he comes to give. And if you, if you languish under this sense, well, God couldn't ever receive me. God could not accept me. I'm too unworthy. That's not humility. That's an insult to the mercy that is sitting on the top of the Lord's table in the hand of the Father. One pastor explained this text like this. He said, this woman did not just say, I'm a sinner. She also said, but your mercy is deeper than my guilt, wider than my wanderings, stronger than my weakness, greater than my sin. Genuine repentance doesn't just hate and acknowledge sin. It clings with confidence to these morsels of mercy that are falling generously from the table of the Christ. And so she says, I'm going to eat at my father's table or from his table because he's full of mercy. And yes, I'm unworthy. But I know that my father's mercy is so generous that it always overcomes my unworthiness. That's how the grace of God works. It's actually counter to your flesh, to what your prideful mind would think. Mercy is never given until you know that you need it. But when you realize that you need it, there's no end to the rich supply of God's mercy that's offered through Christ. Think about the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. It's not until he's in a far-off country and he's destitute and hungry and filthy that he comes to his senses and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then what does the father do? Here's a, a new robe. Here's a ring. Here's a feast of grace. You see, friends, it's only when you know that you're a dog under the table that Jesus welcomes you to his table as a son. And the woman totally gets it. That's the reason Jesus says in verse 29, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. You see, the same faith that compelled her to believe that there was mercy at the Lord's table for one who was unworthy moved her to believe that he also was going to take care of the circumstances of her specific need. She has no empirical evidence, and she says, okay, and she leaves. Jesus doesn't even move from his spot. But she knows by faith that he's actually given her the very thing that she desires. I wonder what it would mean for you to understand the Lord in this way. What would it mean for you to persevere through your circumstances with this faith? That the God who has enough mercy to feed and save a person like you can also do good in those things which you've cried out to him for help. Jesus consistently cleanses you according to your need. But you notice, don't you, that the cleansing is not just a, a first-time cleansing. It's a lifetime shaping. So we have morsels of mercy and now we have a sigh from the Savior so if the interaction with this woman seems at first harsh, this little second vignette is profoundly tender. Jesus is approached differently in each case. But you notice that what he does is suited to the specific need 
to the specific desire that he has to grow this person uniquely and shape that person in the ways that he wants to shape them. It's the same area where Jesus healed the legion of the man with the legion of demons, the Decapolis. A group of people rush a deaf man to Jesus. And from the way that Jesus handles the scene, I I don't think anybody ever explained to the man, hey, we're going to take you to Jesus and he is going to heal you. Now, they're coming based on what they know of as a common Jewish tradition, that that a, a religious man who has some power can lay hands on a person, and by laying hands, maybe there's a blessing of some sort. Greatest scenario, maybe he can heal, but they doubt it too. If you can picture the scene, this poor man who is deaf and has trouble speaking is confused. He's afraid, which is why Jesus is so tender. Look at verse 33, taking him aside from the crowd privately. He put his fingers into his ear and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is be open. Now, why does Jesus do all of this? Why does he spit and touch ears, etc.? He doesn't have to, right? He just healed a girl with a demon without even going anywhere close to her. He's not doing it for himself. He's doing it for this scared, confused man. Can you see that this is a person who has been, for much of his life, a spectacle? That people have watched and wondered and been confused by? And that Jesus, in his own kindness, pulls him aside, and he doesn't use what you and I would think of as modern sign language, whatever that is. He actually communicates with this poor man in a way that he could actually understand. He puts his fingers in his ears as if to say, I'm going to open your ears. Spit, which in the ancient world would seem gross to us, but they thought of it with antiseptic quality. So Jesus touches the man's tongue after spitting on his own hand, and he's basically saying, I'm going to loosen also your tongue. And he looks up to heaven to say that the the healing is not going to come as if I've got some magic power. It's going to come from God alone. And then notice this. Mark, who is always conservative and careful with the volume of words that he uses, says, Jesus sighed. What do you make of that? Is this hard work for Jesus? You think he's tired, perhaps? Is this a, a message to the man... I mean, I'll do it. You're kind of bothering me. No, Jesus sighed not for the man who can't hear his sigh. He sighs because of the grief of his own heart. And it's the sigh of the Savior that expresses the compassion of the Lord Jesus. The one who knows exactly what his creation was meant to be, sighs in sorrow and grief, and even at some level, anger. At the heart-wrenching intrusion of the fall into the lives of those that he loves. What kind of things make you sigh or cry? Loss? Death? What could have been? Or how you wish the story would have gone? I wonder if you can see that there is more hope in the sigh of your Savior than there is in any step that you have ever taken in your entire life to fix your own pain. 
This sigh is meant to be a balm to your soul, to your broken heart. In fact, Jesus' sigh is a testimony of God's heart for you. That in a, in a world which has been twisted by the effects of sin, whether it's physical disabilities or emotional trauma or physical or emotional or even spiritual pain and heartache, Jesus sighs over it all. But let's be really clear. This is not a sigh of hopeless forfeit. Jesus sighs on earth because his father once sighed in heaven and did something about it. He took on flesh and he came to earth and he died under the curse in order to redeem you from all those things which have caused you to sigh. Jesus says it's be opened and it's done. His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Undergirding this whole story, there is a, a past, present, and a future element. We saw the past in the prophet Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 and 6. God's people were told, if you want to recognize the days of the Christ, here's how you'll see it. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The tongues of the mute will sing for joy. And Peter, who's, who's fueling Mark's writing, says, let me make sure you understand, the prophecy was also fulfilled in our midst. We saw the very thing happen. And friends, I want you to see too that there is a present reality in this for you as well. If you know Jesus Christ as your own Savior, it's because Jesus did a spiritual miracle in your own ears. He caused you to hear his own voice. But this is a miracle that also points forward to a day that is coming. When you will stand with God's people before the Savior who once sighed, and your now shaky voice, your now often deaf ears will suddenly be opened, and the realities of the, of the hymn which Charles Wesley wrote, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, will be fulfilled in that great day. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior comes and leap ye lame for joy. Jesus consistently cleanses you according to your need. So we've got morsels of mercy, sigh of the Savior. We're going to close with disobedience and doxology. You can really capture it in verse 36 and 37. Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. You might wonder at first why Jesus tells people, hey, don't say anything about what I've done. There's two reasons. Number one, he came to preach the good news of salvation and to go to the cross. He must become the Lamb of God slain for the sins of his people. He didn't come, as I've said in the past, to be the world's greatest magician. Number two, in the interest of his timetable and that mission, Jesus often strives to keep the frenzy at bay so that it is when he decides to come at the Passover of his third year of ministry where he dies. The bigger question is not why Jesus says what he says. The bigger question is actually why do the crowds do what they do? 
How is it possible for such outright disobedience to come from the same hearts that sing his praises? They're astonished. They proclaim his praises. He's done all things well. That's a doxology. It's a, it's a praise to God. And you notice that everything that they say is, is true. Jesus does all things well. He cares for my specific needs. He draws me to himself. He brings comfort to my soul. He carries me through hard times. He sustains me in those times. And all of those things, Jesus does well. Of course, the great contradiction of the passage is that those who have such good theology, who praise the name of Jesus, also very directly disobey his words. You know anybody like that? I sure do. Know anybody who's got good theology? Who with one breath can praise the name of Jesus while under another breath can slander other people or fall into idolatry or burn with jealousy and bitterness? The great contradiction of the crowd is probably the greatest contradiction of your own heart. It's a contradiction, I suspect, that you will spend the rest of your life trying to reconcile, trying to make sense of, that simultaneously within my own heart dwells a praiseworthy testimony of God's goodness and also actions of very direct disobedience. That's why you never outgrow the gospel yes Jesus does all things well but truly you must remember that Jesus does one thing well that you desperately need and that is that he forgives well because he has to Jesus does all things well because you don't So throughout your life, Jesus consistently cleanses. He shapes you. He changes you according to your specific need. I want to offer three applications to close. I'm borrowing these from someone else I studied. Number one, Jesus can cleanse anyone. The Syrophoenician woman teaches us that anyone can sit at his table. It doesn't matter who you are. It really doesn't matter what you've done. The gospel is as simple as knowing that you need it and knowing that he's ready to forgive and cleanse you through Christ. Number two, Jesus can cleanse everyone, but he cleanses everyone differently. The woman asks for help with her daughter, and Jesus says, you're a dog. While on the other hand, this poor man isn't even asking for help. And Jesus pulls him aside. He shields him from the shame of watching eyes. And with sensitivity and gentleness, he heals him. What's the point? You look at these two passages and you go, there's no correlation at all. Except this is the Jesus who stands side by side. And and, and both actions are done by the same Lord. That's the nature of a multifaceted Messiah. Because, friends, there are times in your own life when the cleansing and the shaping of the Lord Jesus will feel rough. And other times in your life when that same hand 
feels tender and, and soft. Why is that? It's the same Jesus. It's because this Jesus has perfect wisdom and perfect sympathy. Which means that he will only give you precisely what you need in precisely the right moment, in precisely the right measure, and always for your good. Third application. Do not be surprised if Jesus loves you enough to show you both sides of his character. That would be just like Jesus. To love you and consistently cleanse you according to your specific need. Let's give thanks to him. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the comfort of it, the richness of it. We pray that you would draw us near to you. Help us to embrace this multifaceted Messiah who loves us uniquely and specifically according to what he sees within us and knows he needs to change and work on. We thank you for this kind of grace which transforms us from the inside out. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.